Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Great to be in the house of the Lord. It is so wonderful to be here. And so I want us this evening, last Wednesday night, um, last Wednesday night we began a series on the whole armor of God from the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, so this evening, we're going to continue with that. And for the next several Wednesday nights, we're just going to ask the Lord to help us. I hope that uh, through the mouth of different speakers and the minds and the hearts, through the vehicle of different ones, that God can give us a different perspective. Not to, uh, not to add anything or take anything away from the Word of God, but I believe the Lord can speak something fresh to us. We can journey through an old path with a fresh anointing. The book of Ephesians chapter 6, we'll draw our attention there tonight, beginning with verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Of course, there's a few more pieces of armor that the apostle Paul mentions in this text. But I'm just going to begin tonight right here and just ask the Lord to help us to understand the value and how vital it is what the apostle Paul was teaching in that day in the context of the day in which we live. In Ephesians 6, if we were to go back up to the first nine verses, we would find Paul addressing uh, some issues that are pertinent to the inner workings of a family. And more specifically, Paul was not just talking to the Smith family or the Jones family, but he was talking to the church family, the church at Ephesus. And so he began to exhort them and, and how the church should function together as one, as a body should function together. There is nothing more disappointing, perhaps, than to see a family that is truly dysfunctional. Now, I believe that every family has a little bit of dysfunction because you're just bringing people from two different worlds and you're pulling them together, putting them under the same roof and say, y'all tough it out. And so that is bound to give birth to a little bit of dysfunction, and that's not what I'm talking about. But when we see the true dysfunction that can happen in the heart and the homes and the lives of families and it causes them perhaps at times to run aground. But, the, but Paul was talking to the church and I believe as vital and as important as it is for there to have a system of function within a family, that same importance is placed upon the shoulders of the church. And so if you've been in any relationship whatsoever, very long, you realize that it takes a lot of temperance in order to keep a sense of health and balance in that relationship. 
If that's a relationship with another person, a relationship on your job, a relationship with your neighbor, uh, the list could go on and on. It takes a little bit of tolerance on both sides of the fence. But I believe that these exhortations found in the first nine verses also help us today in the 21st century. He was admonishing them to seek to maintain unity. And through that, you obtain spiritual growth. You can grow in that unified atmosphere of harmony and love. I feel, frankly, sorry for children that are raised in some homes in America where that is perhaps one of the most dangerous places and seasons and moments of their lives. Of all the illicit things that may be going on and... Uh, so we feel sorry for those children and we want to make sure that we protect the sanctity of our home. By the same token, we want to protect the sanctity of a church and realize that we've got to maintain unity. Unity is not a one-time gift. You've got to maintain unity. You've got to know how to, to cultivate that and then how to keep that spirit of unity healthy because it's in that atmosphere that things can grow. And then in verse 10, the Apostle Paul shifts his focus from an inward aspect of how the church should function to an external or an outward examples of how the church should function. And his concern in these verses is based upon recognizing the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. I would say tonight at the onset that I am grieved sometimes when I look around and I see people that are somewhat, seemingly somewhat oblivious to the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Amen. There may be moments of that, but our real battle, our real battle is not with flesh and blood. And so he calls on us to be strong and he calls for the church to be equipped to battle successfully against the opposing forces. And so... Paul speaks in his day much like ministry speaks in this day. I believe that one thing that's very powerful in any message, and, and sometimes there's not always an illustration, a literal physical illustration to go with a message, but some of the messages or sermons that we've heard preached through the years, those that have been branded, branded in our heart and our mind the most are those that sometimes had an illustration to go with it. And gave you something that you could relate to. Jesus taught in parables and things that were relative to the moment, to the season, to the day. And so Paul is doing nothing less here. He uses some military images of his day to help the church at Ephesus and us understand the value and the nature of a spiritual conflict. And so these verses make it clear that, that the church is not preparing for a physical battle, but we are preparing for a spiritual battle. And if I could just be so blunt today to put it in, um, in focus in the microscope, our fight today is against Satan. Amen. We are fighting sin. The prayer of Jabez in the end is talking about keeping us from evil. That's not just evil in general, but when you study that, it is keeping us from the spirit of Satan, the evil one of this world. And then Paul uses four things to explain who our enemies are. And uh, this is a message all to itself, and so I'm not going to get lost in the weeds on this. But he talks about principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world 
and spiritual wickedness in high places. And all of those are very important enemies to understand. And then Paul states two things that are significant about this battle. Number one is that this is a spiritual battle and that elements of this spiritual battle are gonna take place in a heavenly realm. And what I mean by that is much of our battle is gonna take place in prayer. And so when we talk about prayer in the context of church and when we talk about prayer in the, in, even in the flow of our services, whether it's through singing or teaching or preaching, I think that we must understand some aspect of prayer is not just a morning devotion. Some aspect of prayer is not, not just some systematic prayer. I'm thankful for those times and seasons. I'm thankful for the principle of the Lord's prayer. Our Father, that means we have a family, we're not alone. That means we are a son or a daughter which art in heaven, that means that there is a heaven. Hallowed be thy name. I wanna keep your name holy. I wanna keep your name pure. I wanna do everything within my life and my lifestyle to make sure that we hallow and honor your name. Thy kingdom come. Lord, let souls be born into the kingdom of God. Amen. And pray for churches all around us, not just for our church, that souls would enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. Our, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven, not in earth or on earth, but in earth. We are of the earth. He brought of us out of the clay, out of the dust of the earth. He formed man. So Lord, let your will be done in me as it is in heaven. I'm thankful for those principles of prayer, but there's some spiritual warfare prayer, intercessory prayer. There's some bridge building prayer. There's some hedge building prayer, amen. And so it, elements of our battle is gonna take place in a heavenly realm. And so that's why the church, and I want you to just say, when I say the church, would you say, that's me? That's me. Amen, that's me, the church. The church is not a foreign entity. The church is not a building. The church is not a longitude and a latitude, but the church, that's you and I, born again believers. So the church has gotta be aware and we've gotta be equipped on how to overcome the enemy. It's as if that, that high school bully has called us out. It's as if someone called our name and said it's put up or shut up time. That's the hour in which we're living. And so like it or not, in those moments, you gotta deal with the situation. In my junior year of high school, um, I took auto mechanics and uh, an auto mechanics class and that class was a half day, the second half of the day. And um, we're, of course, in our class and like most their schools at least, there's always a bully and uh, I'm glad for the attention that's being shown to that in our society today. But there was a bully in our class and uh, this guy was a pretty tough guy or at least he acted like he was tough. He rode a motorcycle. He wore a leather vest, and uh, he wasn't in the Hell's Angels or anything, but, but uh, he, he, he probably wanted to be, or thought he wanted to be. Wore leather gloves when he rode his motorcycle, and he, was, he started on this particular day. There's a lot of things led up to this, but not to get into all that, but he on this particular day just kind of honed in on a real timid, a real nice guy, just a good guy in our class, and, and he just, I mean, he just got on this bully's radar, and and, uh, and so all day long, we had about a three or three and a half hour class. So all afternoon long, he's just telling him all the things he's going to do to him just as soon as that last bell rings. And he taunted him 
And that young man, looking back on that, of course, you know, I was just a kid, but looking back on that, that young man had to be scared. And so sure enough, when the last bell rang, we all left out of the classroom and all of us went to the parking lot. And so the bully, being true to his word, he walks over to his motorcycle and he pulls out a pair of leather gloves. He starts putting his gloves on. He's getting ready for this fight. It's going to be a showdown at the OK Corral. And so we're all just kind of standing here watching this and, and uh, hopefully weren't cheering this moment on, but we were just standing there watching it. But before at least I knew it, I was busy watching the, the man put on his gloves, over the, or the young man put on his gloves by the motorcycle. But before anyone knew what was going on, the other young boy, my other classmate, ran over and he tackled this guy and he beat him to a bloody pulp. And that's the truth. He's still trying to figure out if he got his last glove on tight. And it is over. He swooped in like a swarm of yellow jackets, and it was over. And so what had happened is that the bully woefully underestimated the power of his enemy. And so I would suggest to you today that we're not engaged in a physical battle like that, but I can tell you that often the enemy would love to just taunt and tease and push us into a corner and when the enemy pulls those tactics, the church has got to put up or shut up. We've got to stand and fight back. We've got to stand and push back or you're going to be pushed down, pushed over. Amen. So we're not engaged in a physical battle with physical weapons but we are engaged in a supernatural battle, a spiritual battle that requires some serious weaponry and we cannot fight this on our on. And we cannot do this with human strength. You can't just turn the PA up louder. You can't just change the key of the song. You can't make it faster. You can't scream louder. It's, that's not going to work. We've got to do what is necessary and that is get a hold of the right things, not our flesh, because if we try to do it in our flesh, we are sure to be defeated. Amen. I don't want to, if you're going to take on a lion, you're going to have to have the right kind of weapons to do that. I was listening to two men talk. They were, had both been visiting Alaska. This was a, several months ago, and they both had been visiting Alaska and uh, doing some hiking up there. And, and so there was, they, there was another man that was in their, not in their group, but not, they weren't friends, but he had joined their group. And so there was a, maybe a ranger. I'm not sure what they would call him there, but a ranger of some sort. And so this man was talking about that he had brought with him a 44 magnum a pistol and uh, so he said I brought this with me and so the guide was asking him why he brought that 44 magnum he said well in case I come up against a grizzly bear he said I got this 44 magnum and that'll take care of business he said sir I've got some news for you he said if you come up against a grizzly bear you need to use that 44 magnum to shoot yourself because this is going to get this is a true story he said this is going to get ugly and so thank you for bringing the weapon, but don't aim it at him. You're just going to make him mad. And so if you're going to shoot anybody, shoot yourself. And so if we're going into a spiritual warfare, then we had better not just bring something that we think is just going to tease the situation. We had better come in with real power. Spiritual warfare needs spiritual weapons. And that's why the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in chapter 10 of verses three and four. He said, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I'm gonna tell you every individual in this building is gonna have to figure out at some point how to pray a prayer and not say a prayer. It's not gonna do you any good to recite some prayer if, if the right situation is going down. We're gonna have to be able to get a hold of God and get in touch with him pierced through the darkness of sin through the power of prayer. And so we fight spiritual forces with spiritual weapons. And so we put on the whole armor of God and we use those weapons of the spirit. This armor or the weaponry that, that Paul addresses is the subject of our text. And, and as I said, we began this series last Wednesday night by understanding how to use this weaponry and this armor. I believe that we will be able to protect ourselves from the enemy. So no matter how many times you've heard this, no matter how many times you've read Ephesians 6, I'm asking you to uncross your arms. I'm asking you to lower your guard. I'm asking you to open your mind and your heart because we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Amen. And we can lose our lives if we don't get this. We can lose our lives if we don't get this. Paul, the writer of this letter, was intimately familiar with the Roman soldier of his day. Everyone there knew the might of the Roman army and everyone could describe the equipment that was worn by a Roman soldier. And so when Paul was teaching this lesson or writing this letter to the Ephesian church, it was a very relative message and it was a very relative illustration. Paul himself having spent so much time in a Roman jail, of course was no stranger to these things. It was the custom for a man not to just be in prison but often chained to a Roman soldier. And so he was intimately familiar with every little intricate piece of, the, of that warfare up close and personal. And so this was a personal message to him. As a matter of fact, it was probably the most natural thing at some points in his life that he could write about. And so he was trying to compare the natural and the spiritual and this would have been a very familiar image for those that he was writing to. And so he began to use each element of the Roman soldier's armor to illustrate this spiritual equipment and to try to draw some sort of word picture in the minds of the church. And so I'm just doing nothing less than that tonight. Amen, I believe that we have to see the importance of this armor and that we're required not only to put the armor on, but how to use it, how to make it fit and how to make it work. Because the alternative to this is that we're going down in defeat. This is a, this is a winner take all situation. Amen, we're not, this is not an arm lesson match. We're not gonna end this and just shake hands and walk away, but we're talking about spiritual carnage if we are not the victors in this situation. Without the armor, we are surely in danger, and without and with this armor, we are sure to come out victorious, and so we need to pay careful and close attention. And so when Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, they got the picture. They understood it well. And so we must understand, I believe, this age-old story in a contemporary setting. Last Wednesday night, in our first lesson, Brother Larry Newburn Jr. dealt with the belt of truth. And so if I could just take a couple of moments, not to try to cover any ground, he did an excellent job, but just to summarize that. But a Roman soldier found his belt to be an essential part of the armor. It was not decorative for decorative purposes, 
It was not just a little bit of bling for him to put on, but the belt gathered his armor together. The belt also secured his sword by his side. The belt also served to secure long garments so that they would not interfere when the fighting got tough. Amen. In other words, it was that belt of truth that tied it all together. Amen. That's where we started last Wednesday night. That's where we started because the belt of truth is vital because it is truth that ties everything together. I know I've used this illustration in many, many times through the years in different ways, but every day in the court of our land, every day, thousands and thousands of times a day in various counties and states across our nation, there is a request in the courthouse, and that is to lift your hand and you affirm or swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, I know that we all understand that there is, can be sadly levels of corruption and deceit and dishonesty and all that. But if we could just boil that premise down, if you would just, I know this is really, really idealistic, but if we could just boil it all down and everybody that walked through those courthouse doors would do just what they said they would do, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do you know how quickly you could come to a resolution? How quickly things could just be resolved in a moment of time? Did you do it? Yes, I did it. Here's the sentence and here's the, the, the fine or whatever it may be. And so the truth is so valuable and that is why it's not just the pulpits across our nation that are crying for truth, but it's the courthouse that's crying for truth because they understand the value if we would all just lay it on the line. It would all just be true the value of truth and so it is the belt of truth that brings it all together it all hinges right there on that belt it's our warfare against Satan warfare in which deception and deceit are commonplace and so it's truth that illuminates our way and it's truth that helps us to be ready to fight amen there are two things that I believe are in view here and first and foremost it is the truth of God Amen, here we're talking about the objective content perhaps of truth. The emphasis is on knowing the truth of God because here is the bottom line. To everything, there is a truth whether we acknowledge it or not. There is a truth. If we want to sweep it under the rug, that's going to be on you. If we want to embrace it, that's going to be on us. It's there whether we acknowledge it or not. Truth exists. God's word is truth. And truth has content. And so here are two very serious things that we must understand about biblical truth. Truth can be accepted. Rather, truth can be discovered. Truth can be accepted. And truth can be applied. That is the truth. Truth can be discovered. Amen. I'm talking to men and women tonight that have had a revelation from the Lord, amen. The spirit of God touched your mind and your heart. Truth can be discovered, truth can be accepted, and then that same truth can be applied. But there's another side of that coin. There's an ugly, a dark side of that coin. And that, that side is that truth can be obscured and truth can be rejected and truth can be ignored. I've often mentioned that people coming to the crossroads when they see the truth of God's word, people here tonight, 
that are Bible study teachers and who have taught Bible studies through the years, you understand what I'm talking about and you understand the seriousness of what I'm about to mention. There's a fork in the road that people come to in a Bible study. There's a fork in the road. There's an intersection. There is decision time that people come to the knowledge of the truth and the light begins to shine. It's at that moment they can discover it or obscure it. It's at that moment they can accept it or reject it. It's at that moment they can apply it or ignore it. I'm talking about something serious. There will not be another subject more critical than what I'm talking about that will ever come across this desk or come across this PA system. Truth can be discovered or obscured. It can be accepted or rejected. It can be applied or it can be ignored. It is a very dangerous intersection. It is a very critical intersection. It is a fork in the road and people must decide which way they're going to go. Several years ago, many years ago now, actually my son and I became certified in scuba diving and, and uh, we had taken several classes and one of our instructors, I had a couple of friends with us that were, we had a couple of friends with us that were taking the same course and one of our instructors uh, at some point was a certified cave diver who lives in this area. But he was not just a cave diver, but he was also, he had even at that time, many years ago, but even at that time, he had over 5,000 logged cave dives to his credit. But he wasn't just a cave diver, but he was also a man that worked as a leader of a search and rescue dive team. And he told us one afternoon about a husband and a wife who they themselves were certified cave divers, although they were new to cave diving. They went into one of the caves in our area, up around Mayo, actually, and, and every cave, not to try to meander here too far, but inside of all of these caves, at least the most popular ones that, are, that many cave divers go to, there is a system of strings that run through these caves. I'm not talking about just a piece of yarn. But, but strings that are, that are run through these caves and, and they are color-coded to some degree and, and, uh, and they, it serves as a network. It's like signs or roads and it kind of helps to lead and guide the way out. But of course, there's a lot of variables that go into all of this because caves can become white, white outs or silted out and when that happens, it's as though the water is like milk there is zero visibility. It's not dark. It's just completely white because of all the lime rock silt that are in those caves. And so they were. Th these strings were there, and these strings are there to serve as a highway of sorts, road signage to help you get in and to help you get out. And uh, when this couple, however, it's not a foolproof system, obviously. If you live around here, and all of us do, you know that every summer there are people that lose their lives in cave diving accidents but this couple, this husband and wife, were exiting the cave and they came to a particular intersection. And at this intersection, it was here that the wife got confused and disoriented. And she tried to convince her husband through sign language and writing on tablets that they are supposed to go this way when he thought they should go that way. And so they stayed there for just a while found out all this information later, but they stayed there for a while debating this, if you please, but they knew that they were running out of air. And so when your blood pressure is up and you're in a situation like that, you're breathing harder, 
faster and deeper breaths. And so now you're using up your air at an even a quicker rate. And so they understood one thing. We can't stay here and debate this issue. And they came to a critical decision. A critical decision. Horrifically, the wife went one way and he went another way. And in the end, she, he was right and she was wrong. And the instructor, our, our diving instructor, was the man that led this recovery effort. It was such a sad moment as he began to tell that. You could just think of the horror, the horror of coming to that intersection and realizing somebody has a decision to make. One had to go one way and another had to go another way. I'm gonna tell you there's a sobering moral to that story and that is this, that whatever response, whatever your response to truth is, it doesn't matter. There is still a truth. Amen, that is a hard saying. Amen, I understand that. We, whatever we decide, whichever way we decide to swim, this way or that way, it's not really gonna matter. The, pot, the deal that matters is that truth, there is a truth. There is a right way. There is a wrong way. I know that we live in a world that has taken the Bible like an etch-a-sketch and they've shaken it and tried to blur all the lines and say a God of mercy could not be a God of judgment. But I wanna tell you that he is both, that we are in... Oh, my Lord, I feel the Holy Ghost in what I'm talking about today. We are in a dispensation of grace, and grace has rocked a lot of people to sleep. And I'm gonna be courageous tonight and tell us that grace has rocked a lot of people in the church to sleep. Amen. God, help us to understand that when the dispensation of grace is over, a dispensation of judgment is coming. In the book of Luke, the Bible talks about the Lord asking the disciples to hand him the book. And they handed him the book of Isaiah. And when you read Luke 4, he is reading out of the book of Isaiah. And the Bible says something significant here, that when he finished reading the book of Isaiah, that he closed the book and he gave it back to the disciples. Amen. I want you to envision that with me. Amen. The Jesus himself opened the book and began to read from Isaiah but something critical happened. He closed the book and he handed the book to the disciples and he said now I want you to go into the world and preach the gospel. I want you to share the gospel but hear me there is coming a day when the Lord is going to take the book back out of the hand of the preacher. It's going to be too late for a sermon then. It'll be too late for a home Bible study. It'll be too late for a revival. It'll be too late for camp meeting. It'll be too late for general conference. Somebody hear me tonight. Amen. Whatever your response to truth is, it's not gonna alter the fact that there is a truth. If I believe it and accept it and see it and respond, I can make heaven my home. But if I put my hand over it, if I turn my eyes to it, if I shut my ears to it, it doesn't mean that truth went away. Truth is still there. Truth. Praise God. We can reject it or deny it, but our response is not going to change the merit of truth. Hopefully, we'll not only discover the truth, but choose to receive the truth. John said the truth will make you free. <laughs> Amen. There's power in truth. And there's a second element of truth, and that is this, that truth must be lived out. It must be lived out. And there are many people that know the truth of God's word. They know the truth. But they're not, not just in church tonight. But they're not anywhere in church tonight. 
They know what the truth is. You could stop them on the street and you couldn't pour anything else on them. But you see, it's not enough to have it in here. You gotta have it in here. And when it gets in here, it gets in here. And it's a part of who we are. Amen. So truth has got to be lived out. Truth not only be possessed, it's got to be applied. Because the Roman soldier's belt did no good if it's hanging on the, the nail when you leave home. It's got to be drawn, drawn tightly around. Tightly around. It's 828 and I'm fixing to scare the thunder out of a lot of people. And so now I come to my subject. <laughs> It was a long runway to get here. For the Roman soldier, Paul said, don't just put on the belt of truth, but he said, put on the breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate of righteousness was critical because it protects vital organs, the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, Amen. It was all covered by this vital, vital, vital piece of armor. This piece of armor made of metal plates or metal chains covered the body from the neck to the waist, front and back. And this breastplate of righteousness in this word picture is not something the Apostle Paul threw out for just the Ephesians, but it's for us today because it symbolizes for us today the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 12 and 10 calls Satan an accuser day and night. Pretty descriptive passage of scripture. But you see, his accusations mean nothing against someone that's living a spirit-controlled life. Amen. Means nothing to someone with a spiritual alibi. If somebody accuses you later on, tomorrow or next week or next year of robbing a bank or taking a life and you're here tonight, you're safe. Because even if they accuse you of that, and even if they handcuff you and drag you off to jail, somebody bails you out and you stand before a judge, you've got all these witnesses here. And say, I can tell you for a fact that Mary Lambert could not have done that at 8.30 on this night because I know exactly where she was. And so an accusation means nothing to somebody that is covered with an alibi. And so when we think about the, the breastplate of righteousness, that means nothing against, or the accusations mean nothing against someone with a breastplate of righteousness because the life we live before the Lord either is going to fortify us against Satan's attacks or make us a lot easier to defeat depending on what kind of life we're living. The point that Paul is making is that the breastplate of righteousness is essential for us to, to wear because it will help us avoid a mortal wound. A mortal wound. It's righteousness that protects us in these vital areas of our relationship with God and so that brings us to an all-important question, perhaps, and that question would be, what is then righteousness? And maybe the easiest way to figure out what righteousness is is to figure out what righteousness is not. 
And so I'll just say that righteousness in Scripture here is not our own righteousness. Isaiah said if we pull all of our righteousness together, it would just be as filthy rags. So it's not our righteousness that the Apostle Paul has in view here. And so I know that's going to come as a disappointment to the self-righteous crowd. Because it's not our garments. It's not our life. It's not us on a fence crowing, singing our own song. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is really the only righteous one. And, and so when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, he imputed his righteousness into our lives. And because of the work of Calvary's cross, we can receive his Full righteousness. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. And so when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's not just a just a tongue-talking experience, but we receive the righteousness of God. And that leads to his power working within us. And so the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ enables us to experience this practical righteousness on a daily basis. His righteousness empowers us to turn from sin. And it's on a daily basis that we can have fellowship with a holy God. Now, we talk about fellowship kind of loosely and that's all right in some, in some, to some degree, but, but I will tell you that good fellowship will help you to be a good person. Spiritual friends make me want to be spiritual. That's the truth. Hang around somebody that's more prayerful. I've always said you always ought to be around people that are more spiritual than you, more prayerful, more studious, more... Faithful in everything. It helps you keep reaching and growing and striving and pressing. And when you're around carnal people and you know you're just around filth, it doesn't really matter. Again, you know, if I have to go into my barn tonight after church and I have to go with what I'm wearing right now, I'm going to have to be very careful. Way more careful than I'll be tomorrow. When I got my work clothes on, it won't really matter what I brush up against. It won't really matter, but it will matter now. And so, and so when I'm around righteous people and we're around righteous people and when we're in fellowship with a holy God, it just makes you want to stay holy. We've ended a lot of services with me saying something similar to this. Try to just maintain the spirit that we feel. Don't, don't be frivolous when you leave. Just try to, you know, we got all cleaned up. I want to stay clean as long as I can. I want to feel this as long as I can. I want to, I want to experience this as long. I know that, I know the clock is going to push me out the door in time. And I know we're going to have to lock the doors and turn out the lights. But I just want to maintain this. I want to feel this. Hallelujah. Man, have you ever just gotten cleaned up after a long hot day and you just want to get cleaned up? It feels so good, it just makes you wonder why everybody wouldn't want to do that. I met few people that have different feelings about it, apparently, but anyway. The righteousness of God helps us to abstain from sin, turn from sin, because we want to stay in fellowship with that that's right and holy. We've been set free from our former manner of life, and, and, and because of that, we can say no to unrighteous living and yes to God, and that is the call for every believer. It would, be, uh, it would, it would defeat the enemy's attack if we just put on the 
breastplate of righteousness. Because if we don't put on the breastplate of righteousness, then we become susceptible to every temptation that comes along. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. It wasn't too painful, was it? The word of God tells us that we have been liberated by the grace of God and that this grace has been extended to us. And I mentioned this a moment ago about this dispensation of grace. This grace, this dispensation of grace, one writer, one Old Testament writer referred to it as a space of grace. It kind of pulls it into a focus, doesn't it? Space of grace. And so this grace that's been extended to us has not been given to us so that we can take advantage of it to sin. But a space of grace has been given to us so that we can break clearly from sin. In fact, we've already been set free. And so now the challenge is to live like who we really are. Romans 6 and 1, the Bible says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So Paul is saying, should we just keep sinning because we know we've got this trump card of grace? God forbid. God forbid. That would be like working in some form of law enforcement or whatever that would afford you a badge and you just hang your badge over your rear view mirror and drive 110 miles an hour. Should you do that just because in the event you get stopped, somebody will let you off because you're in the brotherhood? Or is there not really a danger of driving 110? Does that not put other people at risk? So should we sin that because of grace, God forbid. Romans 6 and 11 says, Likewise reckon ye also to, to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto, unto God through Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves to God. That those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we've got to put on this righteousness. I'll ask you to stand and we'll close with these words. So if we... If we live like who we really are and we do put on the breastplate of righteousness, we will live depending on the righteousness of God, not our own righteousness. David said, order my steps in your word that I might not sin. Don't let any iniquity have any, don't let iniquity have any dominion in me. Order my steps in your word. And so as we do, the breastplate of righteousness protects us against the enemy. And I don't mean to try to give an exhaustive list here, but if we just think about it, that that breastplate would guard our heart. If I've been your pastor very long, you've heard me say that to you. When you have faced difficulties in your life and when you've been done wrong or when somehow life has just kind of come at you from an angle that you didn't see coming, I said, guard your heart. Don't let anything get there. Because you see, it is the heart that we've got to keep pure because our motives are born here. So many things filter through the heart. Guard our heart. I've got to guard my lungs because 
from it as we were singing about just a moment ago. It's your air. It's your breath in my lungs. And so I, I want to guard my praise and my worship. Other organs like our kidneys and the liver, they are there to filter out impurities. I've got to guard those things because it's helping me to, to stay pure. It's helping me to stay alive. Helping me to stay alive. You know, people that have kidney and or liver issues and problems, it changes even their countenance because the struggle of impurities Amen. I'm not saying that to make light of that. No, by no means. By no means. I say that with great deference to those with, with those diseases. But you can tell it does something to the outward man. It does something to the outward man. Oh, Lord, help us to guard our heart, our mind, our motives, our purity, our lungs. Our, oh, help us, Lord, that we would be pure before you. Amen. Can we love him together? Can we just magnify him, Lord? We this message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.